Uh, I think I've, I've been a, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, for 16 years now. And I remember since then being amazed and thinking, I want to find out more about Jesus and about Christianity. Christianity, it seems to me, is one of those things that um, people have um, quite strong reactions to. There are some people, like me, who love it, who think, wow, Jesus is incredible. Um, I love what he's done for me on the cross. I love the message of Jesus. And there are other people uh, who really don't like it and feel like religion is a, is a curse or a blight on our modern society, that we need to, we're embarrassed about it and we want to get rid of it. And there are probably a whole chunk of people in the middle who are like, I don't know, I, I've not really given it too much thought before. I, I didn't grow up going to church and I don't know much about it now. And I imagine a room like this, we've got people across the range of that spectrum. But my assumption is that we are often um, not, we're often, um, we often miss things that are really important, miss things that are really significant. At least I know I do. Uh, I can engage and interact with someone and not realize how important they are. I think the first time I met Amy, um, I was dressed up as Jesus in some kind of church play. And I look, didn't look cool. I wasn't looking my best. And if I'd have known that on that day I was going to meet the love of my life, I would not have put my hand up to play the part in that little play at church. No, I wouldn't have done that. I would have looked impressive. I missed the value of the moment. Uh, there was a, a, an occasion in um, the American Antiques Roadshow a number of years ago where a guy took a blanket from his house to the roadshow. And it was a blanket that he'd had draped over his chair for a long time, just treated like you would treat any old blanket. Turns out this blanket was an original Navajo Indian blanket, and they valued it at $500,000. <laughs> I bet he took great care carrying that blanket home thereafter, didn't he? We missed the value of things. And a lot of important things in life, it seems, are also a, a question of perspective. So I don't know if you've seen this picture before. There's different ways of seeing this. Has anybody never seen this picture before? It's quite a, a famous illusion. Great. Okay, so we'll come over here. If I was to ask you, what do you see when you look at that picture? Pete, what do you see? Cruella de Vil. So a, a woman, an elegant young woman perhaps facing away from us. Does anybody see anything different? No, or is that all we can see? Is there anything else there? Well, if you look at the, the elegant lady's neckline, and instead of that being her neckline, that's actually the chin of an older woman. And the elegant lady's chin turns out to be a nose belonging to somebody else. Do you see the second image in there as well? There's two images in there. No, we've still got the one. Anybody just see the one and need some help? We can talk afterwards. <laughs> There it is, the elegant lady and the older lady. Now, Christianity, rather like this picture, some people find it very attractive and like a beautiful young lady, and other people see it as something very different altogether. Uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, I was slightly embarrassed about it because, you know, not, I don't really know anybody else who was a Christian. And I remember the day that a friend of mine's mum said to me, Oh, Jez, I'm thrilled to hear that you've become a Christian. I can remember vividly how I felt when she said that word, you've become a Christian. Oh, I, I could have died for embarrassment. I thought, oh, please don't tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone I'm a Christian. It'll ruin my street cred. <laughs> I don't know. I never had any anyway. I don't know what I was worried about. But Christianity, some, some people think it's wonderful. Some people think it's embarrassing. Well, let's have a look at um, something that Jesus said. And we're going to talk about 
the meaning of Good Friday together. I just want to read for you three Bible verses from the mouth of Jesus, that, something that he said. We, we take his words very seriously. And I think what he said gives us an insight into um, what he was really doing. So in John chapter 12, um, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people. And in verse 29, no, 31, Jesus said this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It sounds like a cheery message, doesn't it? Now is the judgment of this world. Jesus is talking to this crowd. He's been talking about all kinds of different issues to do with their life and their heart. And he says, now is the judgment of this world. In this moment. The way the Bible had pictured the human race is that there was a judgment pending, hanging over our heads. Um, because the world isn't as God originally created it to be and originally intended it to be. That the human race has broken relationship with God. And there's a judgment pending. A sentence waiting to be passed. And we've been living, or they were living under this time of waiting, on bail, if you like. We've seen in the news recently about Adam Johnson and uh, the horrible things that he got up to. Well, there was a moment a couple of months ago where a sentence was passed. He was found guilty, and then he was put on bail, wasn't he, while they awaited further sentencing. And he was given his, how long he was going to spend in prison, then finished. The human race, Jesus said, is, was living, and is living, if you like, in this in-between time, between a judgment pending and a judgment coming. That's a horrible place to live. You imagine how Adam Johnson must have felt, I suppose, being at home, knowing that this judgment's hanging over him. He's been found out for what he's done wrong. Well, Jesus talking to a crowd saying, now is the judgment of this world. Now, we haven't answered yet exactly what he's talking about, but he's, he's, in his mind, is thinking something is happening that is the judgment of this world. And more than just the judgment of this world, Jesus says it's also the time that the prince or the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's talking about the devil. Jesus believed in the devil. Now, many of us might cringe at that idea, but not many of us would have a problem with the idea that there is such a thing as evil in the world. There's a lot that goes on in the world and on the news. You think that is evil. It's horrible. The issue that we might have is whether or not that evil is personal. But Jesus says it is. There's a, a ruler of the, the prince of this world. But Jesus said both of those two things, the world and the devil, are under judgment. They've been cast out. And this is how it's going to take place. This is what Jesus then says. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says that the judgment of this world, the casting out of the devil, was this. Me being crucified. Me being strung up on a cross. And we're not going to look at the last one. We're just going to look at this one verse here. When I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. This is what Jesus believed. He believed that he was about to die and that his death was going to be judgment for the whole world. And that his death was going to be the casting out of the devil. Big themes, big, intense, grandiose ideas. But Jesus sees his death as achieving something. So let's look at this verse for a second. Jesus says, first of all, this. When I am lifting up, lifted up from the earth, referring to his crucifixion. You see, the, the Persians invented this horrible, barbaric way of killing people. And the Romans perfected it. Um, what they would do, as many of us would know, is that, that they would um, cause a criminal, a condemned criminal, to carry a, a mode of execution outside of a city. 
Jesus was then, um, he had a crown of thorns shoved into his head. He had his beard pulled out. He had been whipped 39 times with a, a cat and nine, nine tails whip, which is a, a horrible uh, whip with several strands of leather and bone attached at the end that would kind of lacerate the individual's back. Jesus had endured torture. He was then uh, forced to carry his cross to uh, the place of the skull outside of the city uh, where they drove nails into his forearms and his shins and hoisted him up in front of a jeering, mocking crowd. He was condemned as a criminal. He was found guilty of being a a revolutionary. That was his crime. They were worried because he, he called himself a king. And they thought, we've already got a king, he's Caesar, and we don't want the Romans to cause any more trouble. So they killed this king. Jesus was defeated. He was killed. But Jesus, predicting his own death, says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, when I die, when I've been defeated, then I will win, effectively. I will draw all people to myself, he says. Jesus seems to think that his death was actually his victory, which is an unusual, an unusual way of putting things, an unusual way of thinking about things, because we don't, we don't tend to celebrate defeats, do we? I mean, the reason we remember D-Day, June 6, 1944, was because it was the beginning of the end, the victory of allied Europe over Nazi Germany. We, were, we celebrate D-Day because it was a victory. It was a victorious moment. There were plenty of other skirmishes in the war that we don't celebrate because they weren't as definitive in bringing about victory. Well, the reason at school I was told to work hard and knuckle down was because victory looked like getting good grades. And that's what you wanted to achieve. Because if you don't get good grades, you'll end up, I don't know, being a pastor of a church. Make sure you work hard. Or my team, Southampton, they don't play Champions League football this year because they didn't earn it. (laughs) They didn't get high enough up the premiership. They didn't finish in the top three to stand a chance of playing in Champions League football. Why? Because we we reward victors. Of course we do. Jesus says, when I'm killed, I'll draw all people to myself. It will be the most magnificent victory the world has ever seen. Well, that's different. It's the same with people's lives as well. We remember the great things that people have done with their life. Um, Albert Einstein and his genius and the um, theories and the physics and the maths on display or Winston Churchill and his leadership and the speeches. We, we recount, recite his speeches. We remember the wonderful things that people do during their lives. But Jesus is remembered and celebrated for his death. For his death. So Christians are a little bit unusual in this because we celebrate someone's death and we remember more than anything else someone's death. Because his death was, in fact, his victory. How does that work, you say? Actually, that gives us an insight into the Christian life in general. Because, um, or not just the Christian life, but life in general. It's hard. It's painful. It's upsetting. There's a lot about life that should and does cause us to grieve. And people think, is God punishing me? Does God hate me? Is God angry at me? Or people think, oh, God wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to experience pressure, right? Well, look at how Jesus was treated. They killed him. And so the Christians, we are called to follow in the way of the cross, in the way of Jesus. Jesus says, unless you're willing to deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, he says. That's strong. But Jesus says the judgment of the world was on him. So if I was to stand up and say, God is angry with me, God God hates me, God doesn't like me, 
God's judging me. Well, Jesus says, no, no, my cross, my death, that was the judgment on the world. Now, there's another judgment to come at the end of all time, sure. But the judgment was this. God came in human form and we killed him. But God came in human form because he loves us. Let's take it a little bit further. Let's, let's look a little bit more at um, Jesus' cross and what he means. What we see is that Jesus' cross, though offensive, actually has a, a magnetic, attractive power to it. So he says this, I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all people to myself. I. Jesus does the drawing, if you like. It's not a salesman. There's no sales pitch that can draw you to Jesus. Preachers might be able to paint a picture and say, this is Jesus. But Jesus ultimately is the one who draws people to himself. God didn't send a messenger. He didn't send a prophet. He sent his son. God became a man and came and sorted the mess out himself. He rolled up his sleeves. He got involved in our lives. He did it himself. During the week, I had my mum come to live with us for a couple of days to help out with the kids. And um, I know this might be hard to believe, but I wasn't very kind to her one morning. Uh, I was short. I was late for needing to leave the house. And she was asking me to do chores that in my mind were beneath me. And so I was a little bit rude to her. Later on in the day, I realized I spoke shortly and not very kindly to my mum. So I picked up the phone and I spoke to Amy and said, could you apologize to my mum for me? (laughs) And she said, no, it's your mess. You apologize. I haven't done it yet. (laughs) I thought, well, maybe if you could, that would be really handy. Well, God, you see, didn't send a a third party to come and sort out the mess. He came himself as his son. And we, we tell our kids uh, when they make mess in the house, which is often, we tell them the, the main rule in this house, because we don't like to tidy, the main rule in this house is take responsibility for your own mess. We think that this will hopefully be a life lesson. Not just today it's Lego, in 10 years' time it's broken relationships, but take responsibility for your own mess, son. Well, God took responsibility for a mess, but it wasn't his mess in the first place. It was ours, the wrong that we had done he stepped up. He took responsibility for it. And Jesus said, he said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so, you see, this morning we don't stand here and say, behold the egg. Come to the egg. And we lift up the egg and say, and like we, could, we could get some drums and some tribal paint and we could run around going, la, 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 and chanting, say, the egg, behold, become, be drawn to the sacred egg. We don't do that. That would be odd for us. Instead, Jesus said, no, no, don't lift up the egg. Lift up me. He says, when I am lifted up, meaning when I'm strung up on a tree outside of the city of Jerusalem, when I'm murdered for the sins and the mess of the world, then I will draw all people to myself. He is the destination that we're journeying towards, if you like. Um, Jesus doesn't say, come to a new hobby and a new club. Or here, it's January the 1st, so let's sign you up for a cheap deal at the church. You don't have to give any money for the first two months. Come, come. He doesn't do that. He draws people not to a church, not to a hobby, not to a club, not to a new interest, not to religion. Jesus isn't interested in giving you a new moral morality or a new code of behavior. He's saying, no, come to me. Which actually, 
in another sermon that he preached, he said those exact words. He said, come to me, all who are weary and tired of life, everyone who's heavy burdened, everyone who's just craving for meaning, come to me. Now, the church is useful. It's the body of Christ, the body of Jesus on the earth, the hands and feet of Jesus, the way that the church loves one another ought to be a representation of him. But it's Jesus who is our destination. Many years ago, um, a group of missionaries, uh, Christians, went to Greenland to tell the locals about Jesus because there were people living there who'd never heard of the Christian message. And these missionaries, these Christians, when they arrived and met the locals, um, they figured that the locals didn't really have a kind of a framework for understanding who Jesus was. And so they didn't tell them much about Jesus. In fact, they didn't tell them anything about Jesus to begin with. Because they said, instead, we need to tell them about God. We need to convince them that God exists and who God is and what God's like. So they took them through some theology and some classes and tried to teach the people about God. And then one day, one of the locals overheard one of the Christians reading some of the Bible. And he read a part in the Bible that talks about Jesus. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and the forgiveness on offer as a result of Jesus. And the local turned to the Christian and said, Why have you not told us this before? This is what we need, they said. And Christians, we can do that. We can, we can major on lots of things. Come to our church and we'll give you free wine. Or because we haven't got that much money and it's 10 o'clock on a Sunday. Or come to church and we'll give you lots of free chocolate. Or come and look at this show. But actually, the thing that we're holding up is Jesus. The one who's been lifted up from the earth is Jesus, and he's what we need. A friend of mine works uh, or volunteers in a a charity shop, and uh, he's not a believer, but he tells me that um, the thing that they sell most in the charity shop are books. And the books that they sell, more than any other books on the shelf, are all of the self-help kind of spirituality books, which I thought was interesting. And he said to me, he's not a believer, but he said, there is a longing and a craving in people for meaning and for more. Now, churches don't offer self-help and spirituality, although, of course, those things are implicit in this. What we are here to talk about and to celebrate is Jesus. We lift him up. God become man to live the life that we couldn't live, who died a death in our place and received on himself the judgment of God for sin, for all the things that we'd done wrong. He's what we need. Some friends of mine have a, a teenage son, and they said that for, for a period of months, they couldn't understand their teenage son. Actually, not just for a period of months, forever, but in this particular instance, couldn't understand their teenage Who can understand teenage boys? No one. Um, but in this particular time, they couldn't get them. He was kind of stressed and emotionally volatile and up and down, and they tried all sorts of things to help him. Eventually, they realized he just needs food. <laughs> you just have to give him some food, which is probably a very straightforward answer to most teenage boys' problems. Just food, just feed him, he'll be fine. And they realized whatever was going on in his life, just feed him and he'll be fine. In fact, they, I took a group of teenagers to Romania a number of years ago and he was on the trip and the parents said to me, if he gets cranky, just feed him. If he's tired, just feed him. Okay? And <laughs> I was like, okay, great. That, that's a simple way of coping with someone. In other words, all he really needs is food. Well, all you really need for your soul. See, you're created as a spiritual person with a longing and a craving within you for more, for significance, for acceptance, for security, for eternal weight and substance in life. We, we all of us are. Uh, a lot of us kind of suppress it, ignore it, um, 
a lot of us just kind of drown it away and ignore the, you know that feeling when you're in your bedroom late at night and the, you're kind of lying in bed trying to get to sleep and where your thoughts go to? Often I know my thoughts go to just a craving and a longing for significance. <laughs> I wouldn't phrase it like that. I'm, just, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I don't talk like that in my head. But that's what I know is going on is I want my life to matter. Well, that craving, that longing is satisfied by Jesus and what he has done for us, his cross, his resurrection, his invitation to come to him. That's why as Christians we get excited about Jesus. And you know, in my, my own experience, as I said, not coming from a church home, but now being the person at the front of a church telling other people about Jesus, my experience is that when I go through months of um, confusion or dissatisfaction, I realize it's because I've given up thinking that Jesus offers me anything. And I've tried to find satisfaction in other things in the world. Time and time again, I know that Jesus is the one that satisfies me more than anything else. And that's what he says. I will draw all people to myself. He is this marvelous magnet, the thing that we need more than anything else. Lastly, let me just point out this. He says, I will draw all people um, implicit in what he's saying is that we need drawing. (laughs) We need to come to him. You are not born as a Christian. You say, I know, I'm I'm an atheist. Yeah, I know. But for a lot of people, a lot of in our country, you think they think because we're born in a Christian country or a country with a Christian legacy, we think this is my religion. Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. Have you been drawn to Jesus? You might not like the language of being drawn. Um, you won't like this language anymore. But Jesus said, you must be born again. You think, that's weird. But that's what he said. You've been born once naturally. Now also what's needed is a, a recalibrating of your heart so that you're spiritually born again. Jesus said that those outside of him are lost. They're not bad people. Many of my non-Christian friends are much better people than I am. I'm not standing here today saying, come to Jesus, you'll be a better person than the rest of the world. That's not true. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he is a, a shepherd for our souls who can lead us, care for us, provide for us, teach us, satisfy us. And he draws us to himself. Do you remember that feeling when you were kids and you lost your parents for a time? It was probably only a few minutes, maybe in the supermarket, out walking in the forest or something. I can remember that feeling when you lost your parents. And it was only a few minutes, but it was, it's a horrible, terrifying experience, isn't it? Because your whole world starts to kind of collapse and you think there's a sick heaviness in your stomach. And you, you, you say to yourself, it can't be true. They're just around the next corner. You go around the next corner and they're not there. You go around the next corner, oh, I'll catch them, I'll find mum and dad soon. And you live in this new state of reality of lostness. That's a horrible place to be. A couple of months ago, I, I lost my son at the zoo. I, I say it with a smile because I found him again. But I lost him. It's okay. And social services never got involved. It was okay. I was at the zoo, Drusilla Zoo. And um, he was in front of me playing with some thing. And I turned to look at something else. And I turned back and he'd gone. And I thought, oh, he's just gone around the corner. So I went around the corner. And he wasn't there. Oh, he's just around the next corner. I went around the next corner. And he wasn't there. And I was like, he must be back there. And he wasn't back there. And I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think I've lost my son. Don't tell Amy. <laughs> so this is my public confession because she can't get me. All right, so I lost him. And, and for 10 minutes, which was the longest 10 minutes in my 
time as a parent so far. For 10 minutes, I ran around the zoo, trying to kind of shake off any feelings of impending doom, thinking, ah, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> I'm sure he's around the corner somewhere. <laughs> you're running, kind of like, don't run, because people will think you're panicking. I'm like, I am panicking. I'm going crazy. I've lost my son. And there's that moment where you think, I can't believe this, is, this isn't true. This isn't the new normal that I have to adjust to, is it? Like, I, haven't lost, I, haven't, I haven't lost him, have I? And I had. <laughs> and eventually I ran all the way back around near the start, and there he was, and he was crying, and someone had picked him up and was giving him back to me. In fact, I think that's what they were doing. They were giving him back to me. No, someone had found him for me and said, oh, you, I hope you find Daddy. And it was a terrifying experience, but imagine the relief I felt when I found him. Well, the Bible says that that feeling of either losing something or being lost is our condition outside of Jesus. Sometimes we don't feel it. Sometimes we're not aware of it. But that's the reality of our state. We're lost. I don't know if you've seen the film The Hobbit um, or read the book, but at the start of the film, The Hobbit is invited on an adventure. But he didn't want to go because he didn't want to leave his home. But eventually he decided that the dwarves who wanted to find a home, he wanted to help them because he knows how important a home is. And so he left his home to go on this adventure and... The whole time throughout the film, he's away from his home and he's talking about his home and he's saying, I can't wait to go back home again. <laughs> I want my creature comforts and my doilies and dishcloths. He, he's a creature comfort kind of person. At the end of the film, of the story, he helps the dwarves get their home and eventually returns to his home. Only when he gets home, he realizes something's changed. He's changed and his home no longer feels like home. Well, Tolkien, who wrote that, wrote him as a, or wrote that experience as a picture of what it's like to be a human being, that we live with a constant feeling of homelessness, constantly trying to improve our lives so that we feel at home, or we feel comfortable in our own skin, and we feel at peace with the world, we feel at home. Actually, a lot of us, like hobbits, um, spend a lot of our time looking for home. Well, Jesus says you need to be drawn to him. Because we're lost outside of him. He told a story about some sheep. And he said, imagine a, a farmer had a hundred sheep and he lost one of them. He said, that shepherd, what he would do is he'll leave the 99 and he'll go to find that one. He said, well, that's what God's done here. He sent his son to find that which was lost, that which, was, that which feels lost, that which knows it needs a home. See, Jesus is a magnet for our souls because he offers us home. He invites us home. And home isn't a, isn't a church, isn't a club, isn't a religion, isn't a faith. It's a person. He's invited us to himself. That's what he says. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Have you been drawn to Jesus? Do you find your home in him? When I first heard about the cross and what Jesus did for me, it was, moved me so much. My life's still reeling from the impact. But it's this, that the perfect Son of God loves you. He loves you so much. That when he was dying on a cross outside of Jerusalem, his words were words spoken to the crowd but meant for all of us. He said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. His words were words of forgiveness. When the crowd jeered him, mocked him, when they had plucked his beard out and tortured him and mutilated him, his words were, forgive them. See, imagine all the, the wrong things you'd ever done in your life, sin, shame, guilt. Imagine putting it in a backpack. That backpack, if you're anything like me, feels heavy. 
Or when Jesus was dying on the cross, it was his invitation to say, leave your backpack at my feet. I'll carry your burdens now. I'll forgive you. And in exchange for guilt and sin, he offers us life. He offers us love. He welcomes us home. On the cross, as Jesus was killed, him and his father laid on him all of the sin and all of the wrong of the whole world. That's what the Bible teaches. And at that moment, the perfect relationship between the father and the son was severed somehow in some mysterious way. You see, God has been in perfect relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this incredible creator, communal, loving God who didn't create because he needed something to love. He was already loving, Father, Son, and Spirit. On that cross, in that moment, there was a, there was a, a separation of love. And the severity of losing, or the severity of an insult is measured by the depth of the intimacy with the party that's insulted you. So if, if one of you who, who I don't know very well was to come up to me after this morning's meeting and just say, I don't, don't like you, don't know what you said, and spat in my face and were very unkind to me, um, that would hurt, it would wound me, it would be very nice. Um, so don't do it. Uh, <laughs> but I imagine within a week, maybe two weeks, I probably would have forgotten. I don't know you very well. You don't know me very well. If when I get home today, my wife says to me, I don't like you, and I've decided to leave, and she spat in my face. Well, I don't think I'd ever get over that. And that's because of the depth of relationship that I have with her and don't have with some of you. Well, on the cross, Jesus, who'd had a perfect, intimate, eternal relationship with his father, in that moment, when God laid the sin of the world onto his son, the relationship was severed. And Jesus did that for you. He did that for me. That's why the cross is so magnificent, because of what God was willing to endure on our behalf. See, God turned up in human form, and we thought, great, I've got some questions for you, God. I'm going to accuse you of this and point this out, and why aren't you doing this better, and rah, rah, rah. And God, when he showed up, he didn't come to answer all of our questions and to kind of defend himself. No, he presented himself as a defenseless lamb and allowed himself to be strung up on a tree, crucified in our place. That's what he does. That's what he did. So Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. Do you feel him drawing you? If you're a Christian, we need to be drawn afresh to the wonderful son of God. If you're not a Christian, do you feel a, a drawing, a staring perhaps in you to find out more maybe, to ask more questions? Sailors, when they're out at sea, drifting without a breeze, as soon as they feel a breeze coming, they put their sails up and they follow it. They make the most of it. If you feel the Son of God starting to draw you today, make the most of it. Ask questions. As Amy mentioned, we've got over 70 different ways you can connect with us as a community and Come on a journey of just finding out if the Christian life works in reality, if Jesus actually does make any difference, or if this is just a sales pitch. Join us. Be part of a group. Ask questions. We'd love you to find out more about Christianity. To end this morning, I'm going to invite the band back out now. and Claire's going to sing a song for us about the cross called The Mercy, called the Mercy Tree. And during this song, you can just sit and listen, and then uh, they'll invite you to stand, and we'll sing one more song all together before we finish our time this morning. 
Thanks so much for listening.